Alrighty, well, good evening. We are going to continue our series tonight in the Minor Prophets. And last week we started this book of Nahum. Uh, so if you look just after the book of Micah, you'll find the book of Nahum. And tonight we're going to look at chapter number 2 in the book of Nahum. Last week we discovered a little bit about the book of Nahum. Uh, We discovered that its message, the message that Nahum brought, was primarily for the city of Nineveh and the nation of Assyria. And it was not a good message. It was not a message like the one that Jonah brought, that brought forth repentance. But this message was a message that proclaimed judgment for sin upon Nineveh. And we also seen that God was angry at Nineveh for what they had done. We seen that God's wrath would be poured out on them and that Nineveh would receive recompense for what they had done to other nations around about them. But we also noted that this book has implications for Judah as well because while God is angry at sin and these sinful nations and nations that are unwilling to repent and turn to him, that was good news for the nation of Judah because they were faithfully at that time trying to follow after the Lord under the guidance of Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah. And we see that God actually blesses Judah during this time in spite of what the Assyrians are trying to do against them. So we see uh, essentially that God was angry at the city of Nineveh and how they had treated his people, how he had treated or they had treated his land and also his name in the face of all the idolatry that they brought to Israel and sought to impose on the rest of the world. So tonight what we're going to see is really how Nineveh's destruction was going to take place. We're going to see a little bit of that and we're going to see a little bit of how some of the prophecy of the book of Nahum was fulfilled. And if you've been looking forward to this, I mentioned that we're going to see some of that prophecy. Um, Really chapter 3 has the most of it but we get a little glimpse of some of it tonight. So why don't we pray as we start, and then we'll look at this book of Nahum. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for another opportunity just to gather here this evening. Lord, we pray as we look at your word that you would uh, speak your truth to us, and Lord, that you would help us as we uh, seek to understand uh, the truth in this this little book, and Lord, that it would uh, speak into even our own hearts, our own lives, and our own situations that we would garnish principles and truths from it. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you look at Nineveh, or Nineveh, Nahum, chapter 2, really this chapter is all about reaping and sowing. And of course, that's not necessarily in a harvest sense, but in the sense of the actions that you do may come back and you may see them again. Here we will see that Nineveh has reaped destruction. They have reaped havoc upon other people. or they have sown it, and they are about to reap it for themselves as God brings judgment to them. So first of all, in verses 1 and 2, we see Nahum's declaration. This is what he says. He says, He that dashes in pieces is come up before thy face. Keep the munition, watch the way, make thy loins strong, fortify thy power mightily. We see here this phrase, dashes. In pieces. Essentially, this is literally the one who is able to scatter you, the one who is able to spread you out. Uh, similar to what we've seen God do at the Tower of Babel, 
is said that God is going to scatter the people of Assyria. No longer are they going to take strength in this city, but they're going to be scattered amongst the face of the earth. We also see here that this person is come up before thy face. Essentially, God is saying, I'm coming up against you and going to face up against you. And we see this throughout this chapter that God is against the city of Nineveh. So it's kind of ironic that the the second part of this verse <clears throat> continues and it goes on and it basically it, it's kind of ironic. It's it's basically um, the Lord is saying, "Hey, watch for the enemy coming. Watch, keep your munition, keep your weapons at the ready. Make sure you're ready." to make your loins strong, fortify yourself in power. It's kind of ironic because essentially God is saying your judgment is going to happen no matter what. But yet there's a little bit of a taunt here as well that Nineveh should prepare themselves for battle just like any other time. And we know that from history we can see that the city of Nineveh had vast areas of their city set aside to store up weaponry, to store resources for munition so that if something happened, they would be ready to defend themselves. So essentially God is saying here, watch for the attackers, prepare yourself. I'm coming. I'm coming up against your face. And we know that whenever God says something, he is going to do it. It's kind of ironic because it's essentially God is saying, I know that you're sure of the defense that you have, but it's still not going to be enough. Verse number two says, For the Lord hath turned away the excellency of Jacob as the excellency of Israel, for the emptiers have emptied them out and marred their vine branches. Essentially, we see here a reference of what Assyria had done to Israel. They had emptied Israel out. They had taken spoil out of their land. They had marred their vines, marred their land, marred their produce, their fruit. Um, And in a sense, in the Hebrew here, we see that the splendor that was in God's land, the land of God's people, was set aside by God as Assyria came to judge those ten northern tribes. But the implication here is that splendor is going to be restored again in the future once the Assyrians themselves are judged for their own sins. So here we see in verses 3 through 6, kind of Nineveh's defenses. What are the Assyrians trusting in that not only do they think they can uh, take on God with, but what, what are their defenses that they are so sure of they're going to protect them against any enemy that comes up against them? And importantly, as we look at this, this helps us understand the pride of the Assyrians, the fact that they, they thought they had so much might and power and even enough to um, face the restraints of God's judgment that was coming upon them. There's three things listed here that Nineveh, Nineveh was uh, trusting in against their enemies. The first one was their weaponry, and that's outlined in verses 3 and 4. It says, The shield of the mighty man is made red. The valiant men are in scarlet. The chariots shall be with flaming torches in the day of his preparation and the fir tree shall be terribly shaken. The chariots rage in the street. They shall jostle one against another in the broad ways. They shall seem like torches. They shall run like the lightnings. So essentially here we see a little bit of a glimpse of what this Assyrian army was like. They have mighty men. They have valiant men. Uh, These men often wore red 
uh, a symbol or a symbol of strength and, and to strike terror into those that they come up against. And history tells us that many times the Assyrians came to cities and just made noise by banging their shields and yelling. And because of their number, they terrorized people into submitting to them and they didn't even have to fight. They actually found out that if they terrorized their enemies, they could conquer them easier. Um, so they engaged in psychological warfare uh, through public torture and fear. But we also know that the Assyrians were known for the speed of their chariots, and that's mentioned here, especially in verse 4. Um, I was reading a little bit into this, what an Assyrian chariot was like, and I discovered that even on the wheels of an Assyrian chariot, they attached blades so that whenever they plowed over the top of people, they would spear them and then they would drag them down the street. And even through that kind of an action, they were showing strength. They were terrorizing those that would stand against them into submission. So Nineveh and the Assyrian people really put a lot of emphasis on their weaponry and they thought that that would protect them against anyone that would come against them. But what we see and what we'll see in this book of Nahum is that weapons are not a good defense against the judgment of the Lord. We also see in verse number five that their previous wins uh, was something that they were trusting in, something they were relying on. It says, he shall recount his worthies. In other words, he will bring together his noblemen, the ones that can tell stories of former victories. Um, but it says here, they shall stumble in their walk. They shall make haste to the wall thereof, and the defense shall be prepared. So these men who have been to battle before, they, they know what battle is about. They have seen victories. Um, the king of Assyria is going to gather them together on this day. But we see here that they'll stumble in their walk, and that's a reference to drunkenness because we know, and it's mentioned at least three times through the book of Nahum, that even on the evening of their battle, they're going to be drunk. They're not going to be prepared and ready for battle. But we also see in this that they, 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 they relied on their previous victories. Um, perhaps you remember this verse from last week in Second Chronicles 32 and 15. And this is, this is the boast of Zennacherib when he comes up against Judah. He says, Now therefore let not Hezekiah deceive you, nor persuade you on this matter, neither yet believe him. For no God of any nation or kingdom was able to deliver his people out of my hand and out of the hands of my fathers. How much less shall your God deliver you out of my hand? Here we see a little bit of that pride of the Assyrians. Their, their kings who followed Sennacherib uh, had a similar pride and it was all built upon their previous victories, their previous wins. But ultimately, we know that no matter how many victories the Assyrians had, it's not a defense that is going to protect them against the judgment of the Lord. Here's the third thing that they were trusting in, verse 6, and this is a little bit more uh, to do with the physical geography of the city of Nineveh. They were trusting in their water and their walls. It says here, The gates of the river shall be opened and the palace shall be dissolved. And really what you have here is another reference in the book of Nahum, and there's at least three that make direct reference to the idea that the city is going to be overcome by a flood. 
Nineveh was built on a major river. It was built upon the Tigris. And out of the Tigris, there was two major tributaries that passed into the city itself. So this was a city with three major sources of water flowing into it that was able to protect and sustain the people within. In each part of the city, there was 15 gates in total, and each one of these gates had some of the water flowing through it, hence this phrase, the gates of the river. But whenever it rained in this area, uh, whenever there was major storms, this constant supply of water that the city had that was a good thing that could sustain them actually swole up and started to flood the city. Um, history tells us that Zennacherib designed some dams upstream so he could help control the flow of the water. And the Nineveh was assured that their water would not only help sustain them in attack, but also protect them against those that came against them. Their walls were another thing they trusted in. Their walls were extraordinarily thick. Um, history tells us that they were up to 15 meters thick. That's 45 feet thick. And they were 30 meters tall, 98 feet tall. These were giant stone walls. The city was virtually impregnable with the thickness of the walls and then the waters that surrounded it. But really, the waters and the walls are not a defense against the judgment of the Lord. As God says twice before, as well as this verse in Nahum chapter 6, or chapter 2, verse 6, he also says that the, river, the gate of the rivers shall be opened. So chapter 1, verse 8 says, But with an overrunning flood he will make an utter end of the place thereof. And in chapter 2, verse 8, it tells us Nineveh is of old like a pool of water. So there's three references here that the city of Nineveh is going to be partially destroyed at least by water. And historically, this was true. The historians of the time said on the night that Nineveh was captured and destroyed. There was terrifying thunderstorms. They caused the rivers to rise, and the water system led to the breakdown in the walls. It actually broke part of the wall, so the Babylonians were able to just walk on in. And it's unclear whether the Babylonians also helped in this as well. Some have speculated that they uh, took the dams outside the city, and they manipulated them to unleash more of the water uh, upon the city at the time. But ultimately, we know two things. God said that the city and the walls would be breached by water, and God sent the rain that caused this to happen. So here we see the Bible is very accurate in con comparison with uh, history and ancient history that tells us of how the Babylonians actually defeated the Assyrians. And God is making that case here that even if they're trusting in these things, it is no match for him and his judgment. So here, um, from here on in the chapter, we really see a little bit about Nineveh's defeat and what happens afterwards. And here we kind of see that principle of reaping and sowing coming out a little more. Uh, verses 7 and 8, we see that Nineveh are going to, and their people are going to be exiled it says, And Hazub shall be led away captive, she shall be brought up, and her maids shall lead her as with the voice of doves, tapering upon their breasts. Now there's a little bit of discussion about who or what Hazub is, but the essence of this verse 
is that Nineveh is going to be taken away captive. Their people are going to be exiled. They're going to beat their breasts as they go. And essentially, this is going to mimic some of what had happened whenever they conquered other cities in the past, when they had led other people um, captive whenever they had been the victor. It says here, But Nineveh is of old like a pool of water, yet they shall flee away. Stand, stand, shall they cry, but none shall look back. Here's a reference to the fact that they're going to try to defend themselves, but their city is going to be dried up. It's going to be drained out like a pool of water that's being emptied. And since the city actually had water sources inside it, that's kind of an interesting statement, the fact that all that water would be eventually drained out of the city. The city would be emptied up and buried in a desert, which is currently where it is nowadays. We also see in verse 9 and 10 that the city is going to be emptied. It says, Take ye the spoil of silver, take the spoil of gold, for there is none end of the store and the glory out of all the pleasant furniture. Essentially, every time Assyria had conquered another people, another group, they entirely looted the cities and they brought back the most valuable things into their capital city. And other times they oppressed people and and made them send tribute, send valuable resources to Assyria to stop them from coming back and attacking them or making their lives worse. But here we see that now Nineveh is going to be looted by someone else. The one who was the emptier is going to be emptied. It says in verse 10, she is empty speaking of the city, and void and waste, and the heart melteth, and the knees smite together, and much pain is in all loins, and the faces of all them, or them all gather blackness. So essentially we see that the city, it's going to be completely destroyed, it's going to be left empty, the people are going to feel like what it was like um, for their opposition, for those they had oppressed earlier. And there's actually really a connection back here to verse number two as well, um, where it says the emptiers have emptied them out. The emptiers in that verse was Assyria emptying out Israel. Now we see that Assyria is going to be emptied out by someone else. And of course, we know that to be the Babylonians, but ultimately it was the Lord who allowed that to happen. Then we also see that Nineveh is going to be embarrassed in verses 11 and 12. It says, Where is the dwelling of the lions and the feeding place of the young lions? Where the lion, even the old lion, walked, and the lions whelp, and none made them afraid. The lion did tear in pieces enough for his whelps, and strangled for his lionesses, and filled his holes with prey, and his dens with raven. Here God is saying, where is the dwelling place of the lions? Where is this strong city of Nineveh that had people in it that acted like lions? You see, a lion was a symbol of strength, and the Assyrians used this as a picture and a symbol of themselves. The fact that they would go, they would plunder other nations, they would take from other nations, uh, like a lion steals prey to feed their families, and they would take... Um, everything that they could, they, they would loot these other nations that they conquered. And here, essentially, Assyria is being mocked by God. God's essentially asking them, where's the lions now? 
Where are these people that pounce on everyone else and destroy them? And of course we know that they are being pounced on themselves uh, in this evening whenever Nineveh is destroyed by the Babylonians. But really there's one final verse here tonight, verse number 13, and it kind of captures the whole essence of what is going on here. And we kind of see Nineveh's ultimate doom. If I asked you tonight... What is the worst thing that you think you could hear from God? What is the worst words, the most damaging words that could speak of your doom? Uh, and I think they're here in this verse tonight. It says, Behold, I am against thee, saith the Lord of hosts. And I will burn her chariots in the smoke, and the sword shall devour thy young lions. And I will cut off thy prey from the earth, and the voice of thy messengers shall no more be heard. This is a terrifying thought, but God is essentially saying, I am personally against you, Nineveh. I'm going to judge you. I'm going to deal with your sin. And I'm going to deal with the fact that you've been doing all this stuff, all this evil to other people and other nations. And of course, we know that they did it to Israel as well. God outlines this destruction in personal terms. He references their chariots. He said, the things that you rely on, your, your weapons, your strength, you're known for the speed of your chariots, but they're going to be burned. The things you're trusting in are going to be destroyed. He says, the sword will devour thy young lions. Again, a reference back to that symbol of strength. They seen themselves as lions, and God says, doesn't matter how you see yourselves, the sword's going to devour you. The prey is going to be cut off from the earth. You, the roar and your voice is no longer going to be heard or bring terror upon other nations. And ultimately, these are terrifying words that none of us would want to hear. We would never want to hear that, that phrase, Behold, I am against thee, saith the, the Lord of hosts. But that was the message that Nahum brought to the city of Nineveh, and it was because of their wickedness and their evilness. I want to conclude tonight and um, just come back to that principle of reaping and sowing a little bit. Essentially, Nineveh and what they trusted in was absolutely no match for God. Nineveh shows through the things that they were trusting in, they showed their, their pride and ultimately, these things became their downfall. They trusted in their weapons, a sign of personal strength. They trusted in their previous wins, reflecting their pride. And they trusted in their walls and their water system. And that they were trusting in their power. But essentially, what Nineveh did to others happened to them. They exiled other nations, including Israel. They emptied out other nations, including Israel. And they embarrassed other nations. They humiliated them. They tortured them, including Israel. And ultimately what we see is the things that they did unto God's people, they were doing against the Lord as well. And here we see that biblical principle of reaping. And so in Galatians chapter 6 tells us a little bit about this. The Apostle Paul writes about it. It says, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit 
shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. You see, God was not going to be mocked by the Assyrians and what they were doing, what they had done against his own people and the other nations. But essentially, all these other nations, everything that they done to these nations, in doing that, they were heaping up the wrath of God's judgment upon themselves. God was not going to be mocked by the Assyrians. They were reaping corruption to the flesh through all the evil things they were doing. And God was going to repay them for their actions. And here we see essentially the message of Nahum as a declaration. He's essentially saying, it's time to reap the judgment that you've been sowing for over the last 100 plus years since the time of Jonah when you actually repented. What Another point that we can take away tonight is that God is against those who pridefully sin and they will be judged. And we touched on this a little bit last week, that God is angry at sin. God is angry at the city of Nineveh and what they're doing. And he is going to deal with it. His, it tells us in, in uh, verse number 3, it says, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. But then it says, He will not at all acquit the wicked. God may be slow to anger. And in this case, God was slow to anger over the course of a 100 years. But that doesn't mean he was going to let Assyria away with their sin and what they were doing. So here we see this principle What they sowed, they were going to reap. And that is essentially the message that Nahum brought them in not explicit terms. Here we see in Galatians uh, verses 9 and 10 of the same chapter, this is what the Apostle Paul says. He says, Let us not be weary in doing well, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. As we... Have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. So here we see this principle of sowing to the Spirit. If we sow to the Spirit, then we will reap things of the Spirit. We will reap good things. It tells us here that we will reap a harvest, a good crop. And of course, Assyria was reaping the what they had sown to their flesh. And Paul is encouraging us here as New Testament believers, as followers of God, sow to the Spirit and reap life everlasting. Reap good things. So I want to encourage you tonight, don't sow like the Assyrians. Sow like the Apostle Paul. Sow in, the way, in, in conjunction with the Spirit. Use every opportunity to do good unto others even sinners, especially fellow believers, because ultimately God is keeping the record. He is against those who sin against his people, and he will deal with it just as he was dealing with the nation of Assyria and their capital city, Nineveh. Next week we'll look at chapter 3, and we'll see a little bit more of the prophecy of how this city was going to be completely destroyed. Um, And we see that God gets it absolutely right in conjunction with secular history and what we know. But for now, let's think about this truth, the fact that what we reap is, or what we sow is what we're going to reap. And therefore, we must be careful with what we sow and not fall into the same mistakes as the city of Nineveh. 
Let's pray this evening. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you just for another opportunity to study your word. Lord, we thank you for, um, Lord, the example of Nineveh. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to uh, learn from it, Lord, that we would, um, Lord, that we would sow good things, that we would sow uh, to the Spirit, Lord. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to uh, not sow to the flesh and that you would help us with that this week. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your faithfulness. And we thank you, Lord, that ultimately you will judge sin. And Lord, we pray and ask that you would help us to leave that in your hands and that you would help us um, to do good unto man and show them your goodness and your glory through that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for watching this video of one of our recent services. It's a pleasure for us to have you join us from a distance and join our church in a time of worship around the Word of God. The most important message that we can tell you is that God loves you. And He loves you so much that He gave Jesus Christ as payment for your sins. And the Bible says that all that believe on the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. We want you to know that message that true life is found in Jesus Christ and eternal life, the opportunity to live with God forever in heaven in spite of our sinfulness. True life is only found in Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Would you be willing to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Would you be willing to pray something like this? Lord, I know I'm a sinner and I know there's nothing I can do about my sinfulness. I don't want to pay for my own sin and I want to put my faith in Jesus. I want his death on the cross to pay for my sins. I want to repent from doing things my own way and make Jesus Lord of my life. Would you be willing to pray something like that and put your faith in Jesus Christ? If so, we want to help you as you start your spiritual journey with Jesus Christ. God loves you. Our church loves you. We're glad that you could watch this message today. God bless.